Hello, I'm Pia, a married, semi-employed, full-time graduate student mom from Atlanta with two boys, Andrew, 12, and Emmanuel, who is three. Hi, I'm Brianne, a stay-at-home mom from New York City that currently lives in Houston, Texas with my husband and three young children. They are six years and under. So Pia, who's our guest for today? Well, I think that I'm going to allow our guest to introduce her, herself because for one, she knows who she is and what she does better than either one of us. So guest, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> I feel like it's like the mystery when you just open the door. Uh, so I'm Tracy Ledoux. I'm an associate. Hello, Hello Pia. Hello, Brianne. Thank Hi. you for having me. Thank you for coming. Um, so I'm an associate professor of nutrition and obesity studies at University of Houston. Okay. We are glad to have you with us. So tell us, you said associate professor of nutrition and obesity, obesity studies. studies. Mm -hmm. So how did you decide to get into nutrition and obesity studies? What I don't know, convinced you that that was your calling or did you just yeah, buy yeah. into it? So um, I have always been interested in health and wellness. I come yeah. from a family that that's an interest across the board. Okay. My grandfather was an athlete. My mm -hmm. grandmother was in the local paper in her, you know, in her late eighties, which was not that long ago for <laughs> going to the gym every day. Awesome. Yes. Um, so yeah, so that's just kind of like part of my value system of where I come from. So in college, I majored in nutrition. When I found out you could actually get a job, that there are things <laughs> called dietitians and they get paid. So I did that. But once I started practicing as a dietitian, I realized uh, just knowing what you should eat is not enough no. to change behavior. So I went back for a degree in psychology and became a licensed psychologist. Mm -hmm. And um, now my work merges those two fields and I study eating behaviors primarily in the early family unit and how overeating behaviors uh, are developed through the family structure. Right. Can I you can't wait to pick her brain about this. <laughs> well, before you begin picking her I brain. I know, I have to hold off. I have to hold off. I have one question and then you can begin picking the brain. This is just based on what you said. So how do, what have you noticed? Is there a trend with how these patterns develop in families? What have you noticed? Or Yeah, well, food is... Food is culture, food is values, um, food is um, family or heritage. It's, it's, it's integrated with a lot of different aspects of our life and lifestyle and history. Okay. And it has a lot of meaning. So it's, it's complicated in getting people to change their eating behaviors. And of course, in early childhood, while we're instilling our values in our kids and raising them, in the way that we want to, of course, food is going to get wrapped into that. So yeah. I think, you know, I started out wanting to change adult eating behaviors and realized that change is really hard. So I wanted right. to prevent unhealthy eating behaviors from developing. So I was getting, I got younger and younger in the groups that I worked with and studied and went down to adolescence and went down to childhood all the way down to, I actually have some research in pregnancy around pregnancy mm -hmm. weight gain because there are some things that happen when you're pregnant that already predicts childhood obesity and unhealthy really? eating behaviors oh just from yeah, the in utero environment and some epigenetics programming and things like that. 
So I just kept getting younger in my effort to prevent the onset of overeating behaviors. And uh, truly, I think in that toddler age range, you one to three year olds, I think that's when they're first being introduced to food in general, and they are adopting the diets that looks like what their family members are eating. And that's when things can either go wrong, <laughs> begin to go wrong, or set a healthier path for things to okay. stay, quote unquote, right. Okay. All right. Well, Brianne, what is your first question? Because I know. Uh, I, have, I, have, I have a few questions. I was taught uh, when I lived in London that there is a age at about two where children will just get turned off of food. And it has a lot to do with just we're designed that way because mm -hmm. prehistorically we would be in out in the wild and they're starting to walk away from their parents and just to save their own lives, they just won't eat certain things that they're not that they know that they're not used to or know not to trust, and also things like green foods because it's not um, they could potentially be poison, right? Because it's not ripe, so. Toddlers tend to have an aversion to green foods. I've never now, heard that before. Is, have you heard of this before? Oh, yes. Yes. So it's picky eating is a completely normal developmental process that happens usually between two and four. And there's something else called neophobia, which is kind of what you're talking about. Kids have an aversion to new foods. They don't want to try new foods. And it's we think it's partly for those reasons that, you know, when they're moving away from their parents and getting more independent and exploring their environment, it's a safety, right. evolutionary safety mechanism that they're not going to want to ingest anything that comes around because a lot of things could be harmful. Right. Um, and so it's, it, it is a normal part of development where you'll see kids between two and four get really, really picky and really restrictive about what they want to eat and refuse to try new things. And it has to do with flavor and texture. Right. Um, so yes, it is a normal part of development. And when do you, like when, when you put up texture, I thought sometimes some kids have an aversion that's not healthy. Like how do you know when, okay, this is not healthy? When it's extreme, I guess. Yeah. So most kids, there's most kids will eat a, a small range of foods, and some will eat a larger range of foods. But in the most extreme cases, it would affect their growth, and that is really when you would have to make a determination about, you know, whether there's an intervention that's needed more so than what you've been doing, or just you know seeking advice and trying different strategies and things that we'll talk about later, I'm sure. But um, but yeah, there could be a there could be a condition or developmental issue that would make them more restrictive in what they're willing to eat. Um, there are some behavioral conditions, you know, you see more of this with kids that have autism or other types of developmental delays or behavioral problems that have other uh, symptoms that go along with it. But picky eating, really restrictive ranges of food intake are one of the many symptoms that you'll see with, with kids like that. But if you see that their growth is dropping off because they're so restrictive, that would be the time to talk to the pediatrician and, and get some, some maybe more intervention. Right. Okay. So when you say that um, they would have weight loss or growth would drop off, is it, is it normal for there to be some during that two to four years of age? At what point would it become problematic? So when you go to the pediatrician, they're always going to give you, or they will always measure, or most of them will, will typically measure body mass index. Okay. And they will compare, they will take the child's BMI and 
compare that to other kids of the same age and gender. And so you'll get a percentile from that. And so you probably would hear a lot of times your pediatrician say, oh, your child's in the 20th percentile for their BMI or for their weight or their height. Okay. And if, as long as they're tracking along, and it's not necessarily that they are tracking along at the 50th percentile, it's, tra it's that they are consistent in whatever line, yeah. the percentile they are. So okay. if they're at the 20th percentile at age two, if they continue to be roughly around the 20th percentile as they get older. Mm -hmm. And there are some, some normal dips and, and that happen with BMI as kids' growth and their body composition changes as they grow. But as long as they're tracking along the same percentile, they'll be okay. Okay. All right. What was your next question for you? Because okay. I see. <clears throat> oh, no, <laughs> I don't think I have another question. Just, um, just can you give us some feedback on how to have a young family uh, teach their children good eating habits, especially in today's society where sugary foods are all over the place and constantly handed to our children. Oh yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely a um, kids are bombarded with food advertisements and sugary foods, and they have an innate preference for salt and sugar and fat. So of course, that's what they're going to want. Kids, do, what we need to remember is kids need to develop preferences for things that are not innately preferred. So vegetables, you mentioned green vegetables, um, even fruit that isn't like berries sometimes are not super sweet. Mm -hmm. um, kids need to develop a preference for those and learn to like them, acquire a taste for them. And that takes repeated exposure. It takes watching their, their loved ones and role models, parents and siblings and other family members enjoying those types of foods over and over again. It takes seeing them available in their environment. It takes trying them when they're hungry. All of these things slowly um, start to escalate the, the amount of, preference I guess that the kids have for those foods and over time they will eventually begin to want to eat them on their own. Right. The worst thing we can do which I think is, is what a lot of parents think we should do because fruits and vegetables are healthy and so we should get our kids to eat them at every meal and if they're not eating enough of those things then there's something wrong and they're not going to be healthy. Uh, but when you try to force or coerce or bribe or, you know, whatever manipulative strategy that we're trying to use to get our kids to eat those foods in a meal, you can pretty much get them to eat whatever you want them to right. eat in that meal. But you're not setting yourself up for a goal of getting them to like those foods and choose those foods independently when you're not around. Right. Oh, that's later on. Yeah. And that's two different goals. So, you know, the ha getting them to eat it in the meal is, is one goal, but getting them to develop a lifetime preference for it is a different goal, and the strategies are different. So if you're going for a lifetime of enjoyment of healthy foods, then you really are trying to prevent creating power struggles around foods, which will increase their dislike for those foods. Okay. So the, whatever you're trying to bribe, coerce, force, pressure kids to eat, like broccoli, let's say, which is a common food for this. Um, you can get them to eat it by doing those things in the meal, but just even if you're using positive reinforcement strategies like, oh, yay, let me give you a sticker, or you can eat a cookie for a dessert if you eat your broccoli, that makes the kids like it less automatically, mm, just giving them a reward. Oh, wow, giving yeah. them a reward actually makes them so like it. Bad, we need to back off on the rewards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I do have a question. Okay. Um, so I guess taking into account culture, mm -hmm. I remember in the 90s, there was this 
soul food was considered forbidden. It was the fact that it was high in fat, high in calories, and it was just unhealthy to eat. But I always had in the back of my mind that, I mean, we're talking meats, vegetables, it's how they're prepared. And it's not so much the food itself. So have you ever had to, I guess, counsel families or ever worked with families of different cultures to find a way to maintain their diet, but to just improve it so that it's, it's healthier for them without completely changing their, their food palate, their taste palate? Yeah, I don't think there's any diet um, that is original to any culture that would that has that should be wiped out. <laughs> I think in every every um, way of eating from every culture can be preserved. But you're right; there are just different preparation methods. Um, you know, additives. You can always you know change the source of the fat that are used in cooking, reduce the amount of salt in cooking, and change the nutrient structure of that entire food just by altering the amount of excess sugar, fat, salt that you add to things. Okay. Right. So this is my, my issue with modern food. Uh, when we talk about soul food, or mm -hmm. I'm from the Caribbean, so like Caribbean food, uh, it, it, it's kind of similar to starchy or um, stews and, well, um, there's some things that are fried. I feel like, and when you say the original food, I feel like the original food wasn't bad. It's the current version <laughs> of the original food, the added um, Hawaiian bread mm -hmm. to all the Thanksgiving meals. That wasn't there. No. <laughs> 20, even when I was a child, that wasn't mm -hmm. there. It could have been like someone's homemade biscuits. Like mm -hmm. how, like, um, not that biscuits are great for you either, but it, it's- In moderation. It's, right, in moderation, mm -hmm. but I'm sure a homemade biscuit is probably still better than like food full of preservatives. Exactly. And, like how how does a modern family how how does a modern how does a modern family eat with all this um like extra yeah all these extra things added to our diets now are added to our to our food yeah so families have that struggle where we don't have a lot of time we don't have a lot of some families don't have a lot of money to afford all the types of foods that they might want. Um, and then you're balancing that with trying to be nutritious and avoiding processed foods. So the more you're avoiding processed foods, many families think if I'm not buying processed foods, then I need to spend a lot more money on fresher ingredients and I need a lot more time to prepare those things. It's a time I feel like. It's yeah. Yeah. I think, and I think it's a little bit of all of both, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, it, for sure, if you make yeah. things from scratch yourself you're gonna have a healthier output than yes. if, you, if you buy right. pre-packaged from somewhere else. Um, but then the, you're offsetting the time and the cost associated with that. Um, but you know, eating healthy uh, does not have to be a time-consuming process and it doesn't have to be super expensive. I mean, you know, when you, you talk about beans and rice, I mean, nothing is more inexpensive than that. And right. it's super healthy. It's got tons of fiber and it's whole quick grains. and whole grain. And yeah, but it's maybe a little more boring than, <laughs> than things that have a higher fat, you know, higher fat meats or bacon or, you know, different things like yeah. that. Um, and so, I, you know, with our kids, Raising them to appreciate, if, if, I guess some of these things are learned preferences over time too. Like 
if we go, if you travel somewhere else, and we just had, I just had an exchange student from Turkey. And when she moved here, she said, even the when you buy candy in the U.S., it is so much sweeter mm -hmm. and saltier than the same exact candy you would buy in mm -hmm. Turkey. And I'm very right. same about Europe. It's like with Mexican Coke. Have you know there's a huge difference yes. in the quantity of sugar in American Coke versus Mexican Coke? Right. So that's just like an easy something that anybody could go and experiment with themselves to see the difference right. in the sugar. So that so we have gotten accustomed to really intensely sweet and salty flavors here in the U.S. And, and that means we don't have to have those intense flavors to enjoy food because people in other parts of the world still enjoy their food and still find these other things right. as treats. So with our kids who are not, um, haven't developed that sense yet, I always recommend serving the blandest version of things possible. I remember mm. my daughter, when she turned one, you know, feeding her plain oatmeal, plain yogurt, and she loved it, enjoyed it, yeah, and my thought son's it was great. great. It's plain. I have to put fruits in it now, but for the longest, he just ate plain yogurt, where I noticed a lot of people give their children the animals or the gogurt, but they're full of sugar. Right, right. And, sure. and they think, oh, it doesn't taste good to me. Exactly. So I'm going to give this to my kid because they're going to be bored with it. And I'm thinking, they've been drinking breast milk or formula for 12 months. They're excited <laughs> to have anything, but it's not that. I can, I can choose. I, I do agree with you completely because even with oatmeal, I would just put, give him plain oatmeal or fruit in it and he would eat it. And once he began to experiment with other foods, you could tell that it's, mm -hmm. I'm not going to say it opened up his world. But he knew that something was not right. So I guess, like you said, if you can delay introducing your children to those, to those sweet flavors, it, it makes a difference. Yeah. Well, I been definitely good about the bland and plain foods because I've been so disappointed in making these exotic dishes you know, for my country and giving it to my children and they're like, meh. <laughs> and then, or just like I saw a recipe and I got excited and I made it for them because it said the kids love this and they're like, mm. And so I caught in, I've gotten pre-born so now I feel very good at that. <laughs> I've been pretty simple with their meals and but I'm concerned about the sugar intake. Like I'm really, especially with my oldest, we were paleo people when she was learning to, when she started to eat, she had a really good, healthy introduction to food. She didn't really have crackers or too much bread. I, I mm -hmm. think only now at this, she's seven, this is the first year that she started to take a sandwich to school. And unfortunately it was Hawaiian bread. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the only bread that she'll like actually make eat unless mm -hmm. it's um toasted or something and it, it's it's because she likes toasted though mm -hmm. but she never had um sugar until mm -hmm. her first birthday you mm -hmm. know when we took that picture mm -hmm. and in, in her picture she's like looking at the cupcake yeah she doesn't she tastes it and she doesn't want it mm -hmm. fast forward to mm -hmm. kennedy at, at first grade Every day after school, she's like, what, what can we get for a snack? What can we get for a snack? And I'm starting to, um, like, ration food with her and, like, and saying things like, okay, well, you had something sweet this morning, so you can't have something sweet this afternoon. And I'm like, this is not a good pattern. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think we're on a good pattern because this is conversations that I had with myself and I'm dieting or something mm -hmm. or trying to control my food. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering is is she addicted to sugar, which I, I want to say she's addicted to sugar, but I'm not too sure if I should put those words on a child, but mm -hmm. how do I wean her off this 
Yeah. Before you answer, Tracy, let's take a break. So we are on the question, how do I wean my children from sugar? And we'll answer that when we come back. Okay, I'm going to have to edit this. Do the mouse. I can't get it right there. Oh. Love the green. The green. That. You need to go here, Brie. <laughs> what are you doing? Hey, Michelle, I can see her. Oh, yeah, because we weren't on the mouse pad. Thank you. Oh, God. Okay, we are back, and we stopped with Brienne asking if her daughter could possibly have a sugar addiction, and if so, how can we, how can we um, reduce her sugar consumption? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is a very common uh, concern. Um, you know, in our job as parents that I always tell families is to create a healthy environment and to respect our child's right to eat as much or as little as they want from the foods that they have available to them. So if you keep that in mind when you're thinking about your role with your daughter and all of us with our children, we have to be very mindful about what we bring into the home right. and what yeah. we serve at meals. And if you are pretty sure that most of the food options in the home and that you've offered at meals are things that you approve of, then you can, you can kind of loosen up and relax about letting them eat as much as they want and feeling some security in that. Okay. Of course, we're never going to have, you know, no candy in the house or no sweets or some treat the same year with the cookie season. That's oh what, yeah, that's girls been getting me, and so. there's chocolates being sold from school, and there's chocolates in the house. Usually, we don't have any of these things. Yeah. And now she's like, "Oh, can I take a chocolate to school?" And then I pick her from school, and she's like, "Oh, and then now can I have my mm -hmm. popsicle at the end of the day?" Because they sell popsicles for mm -hmm. fundraiser at the school from Steel Pops, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with. It's mm -hmm. a healthier version of popsicle, which is oh. juice. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm like, "Well, you already had mm -hmm. this." Mm -hmm snack you know i packed a new lunch and mm -hmm. and i used to never pack anything sweet in her lunch but we had it here in the house and this is our first year being a girl scout and mm -hmm. girl scout cookies right and it was our first year having two boxes of chocolates for the sales because my husband said he was going to sell the ch these chocolates and we have some left over and they're hanging around in the house and mm -hmm. now i i feel like oh my goodness Mm -hmm. I'm rationing food with my kid, but you brought it, it this conversation has made me realize this is mm -hmm. not something ongoing. This is something that's happening. It's acute. Like this right. is happening right now. Right. And this is our first year experience in it. So I can calm down yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and step back and say, okay, well, next year we won't have the chocolate sales or yeah. you're going to keep the candy at work. At work. You can't bring it back in the house because yeah, and a problem I, with actually. Yeah, and, and I think the other side of that too is 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 maybe trusting her and experimenting with this. Okay. A little bit more. Um, so, and and this is there's no research behind that what I'm about to suggest. Okay. However, one of the things that I think about with my own kids and what I've observed with other people's children is when you're learning balance you have to tip too far one way and too far the other way before you get your footing and establish a sense of balance. Right. So 
when my children eat something that is, you know, sugary or fatty or something, I don't typically restrict how much of it they can eat because I find, and the research does show this, that when you restrict, it just escalates their increased, their interest in it. Right. And so they want it more and it becomes more of a like, Ooh, yes. this is a thing. yeah, it's this thing that's like, I want so bad and I'm not supposed to have it. And it's this that whole thing. Diet. Oh, like, yeah. I don't believe in restricting things when I diet. It's just, and I shouldn't say diet, when I change my, my mm -hmm. food behaviors is to still eat the chocolate cake, but I'm not going to have the cheesecake factory size portion. It's going to be a two inch slice. See, but I can't do that. Yes, you can. Well, no, I think there's certain personalities, and my personality is just. But it's that fit. But, but I think that's, that's all you bring home. But and but that's my personality. Like I can't do. I can't do um, moderation. I'm more of a. I just am not going to eat it. But you've learned that about but yourself. But that's, that's me. True. That's not my child. Yeah, and I've learned that about myself. And she needs to learn whatever her pattern is. And you know, if she, my guess is if she were to, if you were to give her full access to whatever the, the cookies or the chocolate or whatever it is, if we eat as much of that as we possibly can, you're going to feel sick. Right. You're going to feel kind of tired and cruddy. And I've seen this with other kids and my own kids, they'll overeat something, uh, pizza one time. And my daughter had a tummy ache and I was like, great, great teachable <laughs> moment. You know, let's talk about that. Well, you ate a lot of pizza and maybe that's what it was. And she, her own intrinsic desire at that point was, oh, I don't, yeah, I don't want to eat that much anymore. And then, then I'll remind her about that sometimes when we have pizza again, like, oh, remember you got a tummy ache that one time and she'll, she'll choose to scale back. And, and I think that's part of learning what that consequence is right, to right. overeating. It's, it's the natural consequence that will be a lot more, um, you know, they'll, it'll be a lot more impactful for them than us constantly holding, dangling a carrot, you know, just slightly out of reach where they're like, oh, I just want that so bad. I don't care. Because right. the research does show when we restrict, what happens is when they're alone or when they're not with mom or dad, that is, they are more likely to overeat. And eventually they are going to always be away from us. So that would be. Right. I wish I did see that when I was, um, volunteering for Thanksgiving meal at her preschool one year. We never restricted her from having sugar. We just never had. Mm -hmm. So there were children who their parents said, please don't give our kids sugar. And the children and the other kids were eating it. And the other kids were eating it. And one little girl grabbed it from another one's plate and ate it anyways. And my kid, who had never restricted, mm -hmm. didn't eat hers. Mm -hmm. Right. So, but now that she's getting a little older, I, I feel like I had to go a little bit. More. I just see the I see the excitement in her eyes when she gets that bite, and it's fresh. You know, yeah. and it scares me a little bit. I'm like, yeah. oh no! But I have that reaction when I drink Coke. Mm -hmm. Right. I haven't had Coke in about two weeks, and when I drink one, I I, I say that I can feel the caffeine hit my brain. And my eyes are going to light up. And I think it's okay to have that experience, to have that moment where you eat something that you enjoy it because that's life. You right. want to. Yeah. And if you have, and I don't, if I drink a Coke every day, I'm not going to get that caffeine rush. And I don't, and it, it doesn't really taste as good. It's like, why am I drinking this? I'm to the point now where I only want to drink it every few weeks so that it is good. But I know a few adults that have, um, 
food addiction and it's not it's not and if you talk to them sad. but if and you I'm talk to them of that for my own child now if you talk to them it's a lot of that would have to so there is some temperament and some genetic predisposition to find food more rewarding some people do just fmri brain imaging studies show some people find food more rewarding right However, I mean, like there's a, what's the degree of, of reward that people experience with food? You know, it's probably not as great as what you might be thinking. Um, but a lot of the people who have this quote unquote food addiction, potentially tendency or binge eating tendency, I would imagine a lot of the individuals with this have, have not fully allowed themselves to eat these types of foods. Like the, an element of this is it's forbidden. Right, that forbidden food element. And there's probably other. Sorry. And something from childhood right. dealing okay. with a parent who is controlling, who would not allow them. Because I'm thinking of someone in my mind whose parents are like, "Well, that's going to make you fat. You can't eat." I never. Yeah, I make sure never to say that. I, I will bring up like things like you know, can get diabetes from it because my mother has diabetes. I saw her get shots in her stomach to control the insulin. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, so they're seeing those. I mean, but I don't bring up weight because I don't want her to be body conscious which is a, a big issue in like, like america but, but i think that's what tracy was saying that that's that relationship that some people have where they do have that negative association with their body because of things that have happened in their past maybe i'm i'm summarizing that wrong and that's yeah. how people get to that point where they just they don't have healthy relationships and they either overeat or well i guess overeat or binge eat because they are they don't know how to control themselves right and i'm just concerned that this is something my child is heading down, but now I'm talking about it, I realize, eh, it doesn't sound like it's, it's that out of control or something to, for me to be that concerned about. And there's mm -hmm. other, I guess, other reasons why people binge eat. It has nothing to do with food. Like there's could have been other abuses that have gone on in their life, you know? Right, there's another um, area of research that I, that I do a little bit in intuitive eating. And this is, Kind of, this is an adaptive eating behavior. So a lot of eating behavior research is on overeating and emotional eating and all the negative types of patterns that we can develop. But intuitive eating is potentially the adaptive eating behavior that is preventive of disease and obesity and things. And intuitive eating has been shown to be related to weight stability, lower weight status, healthier uh, mental health. Um, better body esteem, so, you know, all, all the good things, even, even lower cholesterol levels and something called C-reactive protein and blood pressure. Um, and the three kind of pieces of intuitive eating are being in touch with hunger and satiety. That's a big thing. Right. Eating when you're hungry, stopping when you're full and, and feeling comfortable doing that. Which kids are really good at. Kids are really good at that. So right. Good at that. Right. <laughs> and then the other piece is unconditional permission to eat. And that means feeling that you can eat, feeling confident that you can eat what you want, when you want, and the amount that you want. And when you start to restrict that, in, and for whatever reason, um, even sometimes if it's health-related reasons or mm -hmm. obesity-related reasons or whatever it is, just that feeling of I can't eat as much as I want, I can't eat whatever I want, I can't eat whenever I want, makes that survival thing, like it makes us want to eat more and right. want to eat more of the forbidden foods. And so... Um, so, it, but it, there is a, there is a balance, right, between health status and the impulsive things that we just want to eat because they taste good. And there is another piece of that um, intuitive eating behavior that is more about body food congruence, 
which means I have an intrinsic desire to eat foods that are good for my body, that energize me, and that uh, make me feel good. And so with our kids, I think trying to instill, you can eat whatever you want, whenever you want, in the amount that you want, um, as long as you're eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full and you're eating things that make your body feel good, as they get older, especially around age seven, you can start to instill the value for taking care of their body and the value of um, how food contributes to that. And then as they get older, they make their own decisions around, okay, well maybe chocolate tastes really good, but you know, maybe it is the best for me. Right, because I, I try to teach her to have a carb, <clears throat> a fruit, a vegetable, and protein with every meal. Mm -hmm. And we good with that. I just always worried about the whole sugar content because I know sugar is something that could be addictive, and I'm not sure if they can actually stop when they're ready. If that's something that they can actually do, mm -hmm. but you're telling me that they can. Yeah, I don't. Um, you mean people who have a problem, like the problem with food no, addiction? Just sugar in general. Sure, like, in general. Sugar oh, yeah. so addictive. It makes yeah. worries me that. This is one of those things that she, I need to have a little bit of control over there with are, her because she can't stop it. So yeah, I, I, she I would experiment. People. Experiment, yeah. If anybody out there feels like their child can't stop eating sugar, experiment with it. Watch her stop. Give her a bag of candy. <laughs> there's, a, there's a, Ellen Satter is a, is a dietitian who has a lot of work in this area, and she has some case studies where she talks about giving kids a, um, like a pillowcase of M&Ms or something and carrying it around for days and, and kid has unlimited permission to eat those M&Ms and over the first few days they're like ah, eating M&Ms all the time and then it just slowly tapers off and then they forget the bag of M&Ms in corners of the house and there's M&Ms all over the place and they're just ignoring them and not eating them. Okay, well, I will definitely experiment but I know our time is running out. Can you, and I, it's all about me. I'm so sorry guys. I tried to hold back. I couldn't help myself. I think you've asked questions that our listeners probably want answers to so it's good that you took this part. Well, what is just can I can I give my final um, yeah sure my final take home point? So, in approaching meals with your kids, always remember your responsibility as the parent is to create the healthy environment and respect the child's right to eat as much as or little as they want from what you have offered. And if you just stick to that, it'll be great. And what's the healthy environment? Well, that's up to you. Stocking the food home with healthy foods, limiting eating out and access to processed foods, um, modeling healthy eating for your kids, and, and refraining from micromanaging at the dinner table. Right. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Tracy. I, we're going to have to have you come back because I wanted to talk about um, strategies for children who have uh, like delays or, oh, sure. or sensory issues. So we definitely will have to have you come back because yeah. I know that that's something that would definitely appeal to our listeners. And how people who live in food deserts, how they can mm -hmm. go get around to eating healthier meals. And yes, because Tracy didn't even talk about her research project, which is how I know her. And I think it's <laughs> so Tracy has to come back. So she so has to come, come back. back so that we can hear more about this because she's doing a lot of good work for just the Houston community, but just, just people in general and our relationships with food. So thank you for coming, Tracy. Thank you, Tracy. I've enjoyed that for you for my consultation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you. The podcast is over, but that does not mean that the conversation has to end. Connect with Brianne and I on Instagram at Mommy, Where Is My Shoe? Or you may email us at podcast at mommywhereismyshoe.com. We also have a website, so check it out. 
www.mommywhereismyshoe.com. Before you go, do us a favor. If you like Mommy Wears My Shoe, the podcast, please rate us in your app. And if you don't like it, email us at podcast at mommywhereismyshoe.com and tell us why. Either way, thank you for the feedback. Goodbye.